If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to go to John chapter 5 with me this morning. John chapter 5. I'm hoping to finish this chapter. John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to the end of this chapter and hoping, as I said, to set up our Christmas season and then have a wonderful time together. And then in the new year, we will start in John chapter 6 and John chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 and 12 bring us to some amazing places. And then 13 to 17 of John is this great interaction where Jesus speaks to his disciples and then prays in a way that I don't think any human being before or after have prayed. And then we're into the passion of Jesus Christ himself. But I want to start this morning by asking you this question, and I've asked it before, and I'm going to try and slow down and make you really wrestle with this question. And that is this, because this question has been asked of me multiple times this week, including again yesterday, and that is this. Who is Jesus? We're about to embark on the Christmas season where we're going to sing about Jesus and we're going to see nativity scenes like this. And I do want to thank all the ladies that were involved this past week in decorating the church. It looks beautiful. But I want you to really wrestle with this. Who is Jesus? And I would submit to you once again that how you would answer that question Your answer to that question would tell you an awful lot about your life and how you live it. You see, because if you answer the question, who was Jesus with, Jesus is God, then that has to mean something. Yes? Amen? All right. A few hesitant yeses for fear that I'm setting you up for something, okay? And I will say the opposite is also true. If Jesus is not God then quite frankly, what's all the fuss about? What's all the fuss about? I find it so fascinating on a personal level. The older I get, Debbie and I went out shopping yesterday and the buzz and everything. There's the uproar, the obsession. There's all the attempts to both follow Jesus and define him, to redefine him and to explain him, to understand him or deny him. I mean, that's the reality of the tension we live in in the end of November of 2017. And it's also where we find ourselves back in the first century in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 47. It's the theme of the Gospel of John. It's only proper for us to think this through as we approach Christmas. You see, there's an old hymn. Here's the title of this old hymn. It says, What will you do? with Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? And may I submit to you, what will you do with Jesus is not a one-time decision that you do you make it and then no, it's a decision you do every day. In fact, you make that decision of what you're going to do with Jesus multiple times a day in a classroom, at the office, at home, in the bedroom, in the car, in the yard with your family. John is asking us today through this gospel, decide, make a decision, come to a conclusion. Who is Jesus and what will you do with him? Let me give you a couple minutes of recap. Jesus has been living life 
among the nation of Israel. Christmas has already happened at John chapter 5. Jesus has already been born. He's been living life among the nation of Israel, walking back and forth predominantly through Galilee and Judea. He's been choosing disciples. He's been working miracles. This very fascinating man named John the Baptist has been walking around in, in, in a leather girdle and eating locusts and honey, and he looks a bit crazy. He's probably got a disheveled beard and long hair, and he's yelling and talking about Jesus, and people are, are amazed by the incredible things he's saying. And then Jesus comes and he, he's spoken to the Jewish elites. He has spoken to a Samaritan outcast. He has dealt with an unnamed nobleman. He's healed a faceless lame man. He's performed the most incredible miracles. He turned water into wine. He cleared the temple all by himself. He heals the sick. But when he turned water into wine... He used the purification water. He broke religious norms in speaking to an unveiled Samaritan woman. He perhaps healed a Gentile son in the nobleman. At the very least, he worked for Herod, who was considered a traitor. And he healed on the Sabbath. Jesus himself is creating a great deal of tension. And can I ask you, is that not true today? You want to see tension fill a room? Start talking about Jesus, and it'll get tense instantly. For goodness sake, think of Christmas. I saw it at the Avalon Mall last night, the collision of Santa Claus versus Jesus. You see it everywhere. You see it in the songs. We love this holiday, and we fight over it, whether it's terminology or traditions. Folks, you see, in the world, love verses like Luke 2. Oh, for goodness sakes, quote Luke 2 everywhere, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Everybody loves that baby Jesus. But what do you do with the Matthew 1 baby Jesus? He shall come to save his people from their sin. You don't hear much about that version of baby Jesus. And so in John 5, Jesus is creating tension and he's now talking to a large onlooking crowd but addressing a specific group, members of the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling class of the temple. These were the cream of the crop. They were the ones in charge. And what's he defending? Himself. And what's the issue? Who is Jesus? That's the issue. And what is Jesus claiming to be? Or who is Jesus claiming to be? Are you ready for this? God in the flesh. That's what he's claiming. This is what we were about to celebrate as Christians. Christmas is about saying God became flesh. Not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. And as we discovered two weeks ago, you've got to realize the Jews were okay with Jesus being a Messiah. But they never imagined in their wildest dreams that he would come as God in the flesh, the Messiah. And how ironic and tragic that the one for whom they said they longed is the very one they would question, they would doubt, sadly reject, and ultimately kill. And how quickly we're going to witness that over the next 30 to 40 days as we lead from November 26th into January 1st of 2018. 
Because we're going to watch as the revelry and party atmosphere of Christmas, the peace on earth, goodwill towards men, the whole love, joy, give rather than receive, will give way to family fights and disappointments. Broken promises and selfish displays. Hugs will be turned into closed fists. Bottles of champagne will turn into hurt, unguarded words and actions. The unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime leave-you-speechless presence will turn into the unpayable credit card accounts. We all, every one of you here that I'm looking at, and you looking at me, we all chase something and someone. And yet, here is Jesus offering himself, doing what no one else can do, And utterly amazing to me, he's got to defend himself to his own creation. Those of us made in his image demand that he justify himself. And so we come to our part of the passage. Two weeks ago we studied in verses 19 to 24 how Jesus is equal with God as Father. But now we look in 25 to 30 how Jesus is God because he has power over life and death. Let's look at our passage. John 5, starting in verse 25. Truly... Truly, I say to you, Jesus says to them, the hour is coming and is now here. If you write in your Bible, probably put a question mark by that because you're probably left confused by what that means. The time is coming and, and is now here. When what? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, God the Father, has given him, Christ, authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Notice there was Son of God and then Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, there's that tower time of the chronology again, when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And just these five verses right here, you deal with one of the other big issues of our world today that every one of you has either dealt with, is dealing with, or you're going to deal with, whether you're afraid to admit it to yourself or not. And that is this, life and death. Here's the question I get a lot as a pastor. What happens after I die? I have been asked that question many times in a hospital room by people of various ages and gender. What happens when I die? You see, this is the stuff of legend. It's the stuff of myth. Every religion, every philosophy has a view, a promise, a thing, a purpose to strive for. (laughs) I love that Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. He says in verse 30, I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus looks at the Jewish establishment. Now get this. These are the ones who should know him. These are the ones who should know what the scriptures say about life and death. These are the ones who should be able to comfort and call the nation of Israel and the nations of the world and tell them, this is what life is all about. Here is the meaning of life. This is what awaits us. But sadly, they don't. They can't, and they won't. I have been to far too many funerals that of, of religious denominations 
And it is absolutely mind-blowing to me to listen to humans try and comfort other humans as they deal with life and death because it is completely void of anything substantial. And we rub it all over ourselves. Jesus once again talks of life and death in both the physical and the spiritual. And as always, many have problems with that. They don't like what he says. Look in verse 25 again. Jesus is explaining his godness. He says in verse 25, notice, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, he hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. So he must be talking about something else. Now, remember, every miracle in this has all been people missing the point. They've been thinking physical and missing spiritual. And that's what Jesus once again is doing here. He's talking about spiritual deadness. Remember, I've said this to be before. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Jesus did not come to the planet on a morality transformation mission. He came to make dead people alive spiritually. We see this also by the fact that twice Jesus refers to people hearing his voice. You see it in verse 25. The hour is coming and is now here. You see, Jesus is telling them, I am going to save. But he tells the religious audience, you are amazed that I can make a lame man walk on the Sabbath. I'm here to deal with people's sin once and for all. And if you will hear me, if you will listen to me, if you will trust me, you will live. The old Scottish preacher, preacher, Robert Murray McShane, said this, One thing I know, that I am in the hands of my Father in heaven, who is all love to me, not for what I am in myself, but for the beauty he sees in Emmanuel. This is why I think this is so fitting as we come into Christmas. Jesus can say in his passage, he is the life. He says, as the father has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. Remember what you read in John chapter 1 verse 4? Jesus, when, when John is describing Jesus, he says, in him was life. What does Jesus himself say in John 14, 6? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the Life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so Jesus proclaims it. I can give life because I am life. Like we see in Genesis 1, right? He, he made man in his image and then he breathed into man and woman the breath of God. Have you ever wondered why you hear that word Yahweh? And to even say it, you got to breathe out. You can't say it without, without expelling your breath. Yahweh. It, it actually means the breath of God where God breathed life into humanity. And Jesus says, I am life, I have come. In 1 John chapter 5, listen to John, he says, and this is that testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Jesus can say this. No, look at verse 27, because verse 27 is the logical conclusion to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, as the perfect representative and as God's expression of himself to mankind, he says, I can judge because Jesus who lived perfectly can judge rightly. That's why 
He says, I have life, and in me, and those who believe me will have life. And if you don't believe me, you don't have. And I can judge this. God the Father has given me this judgment. One man says, because of his, Christ's allegiance with man's nature, because of his sense of man's infirmities, because of all he did and suffered for man's sake as the Son of Man, the Son is the person of the Trinity who was most fit as well as most worthy to be man's judge. That's why Christmas is so important. Jesus became flesh. He lived as one of us. I find it fascinating in Twitter and Facebook how many people claim to love and quote C.S. Lewis. Everybody loves C.S. Lewis, and you should. You should love him. You should admire him. You should read him. But for goodness sakes, actually listen to what he's saying. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us inside us until we try to fight it and Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means that's why he is our representative and it's also why he is our judge that expression there the son of God that's not the title we most often see. It's the second one, Son of Man. But here it's important because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the God who we can see. He's the person of the Godhead who took on human form and came to us. He has life in himself to offer. Is it physical life? Yes. But more importantly, spiritual life. And that's the part that needs to be made alive. The part that makes us right with God the Father. And hence why Jesus says what he does. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now notice, no man comes to the Father but by whom? Jesus. Folks, listen, let me say this. Any road you want to live in life will get you to God. Live whatever way you want, and you'll get to God as judge. Only Jesus brings you to him as Father. Only Jesus and that's why Paul says what he does in Philippians chapter 2. You know these verses. Because Jesus was obedient, because he took on human flesh, because he didn't think being equal with God was something that he had to hold on to and thought it not robbery, but made himself of no reputation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is why he has power over life and death. And before we move on, let me ask you this question. What is eternal life? <laughs> we all wonder about life and death. Well, what, what is eternal life? You see, John tells us in John chapter 20, 30 and 31, when he writes his big purpose statement, remember that? These things have I written unto you that you might have life, that you might believe on Jesus, the Son of God, and have life, eternal life in him. But interestingly, in John chapter 17, verse 3, when Jesus prays that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see, the Lord's Prayer is not the Lord's Prayer. That's a model prayer. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, go to John chapter 17. That's where he prayed over you and I in the Garden of Gethsemane and he wrestled with the will of God and he sweat as it was great drops of blood. And in John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, 
Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, if you offered me hell with Jesus, I'd take it. And if you'd offer me heaven without him, I wouldn't want it. But too many people think eternal life is just living forever with their stuff. That's what the rich young ruler wanted. When he went to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he says, I kept them all. And notice, he only kept all the ones that were outward. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit. And then Jesus says, ah, but one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and come follow me. And then it says he left sad, right? Why? Because he had much possessions. Look at verse 28. Jesus tells those who have become experts in the law. I love this. Do not marvel. Can you imagine what that's like? He's looking at some of the most educated people in all of Israel and he goes, you really don't know this? Don't marvel. Are you surprised? Are you shocked? How? How can you not know this? See the irony of this, the scalling nature of this, how this would have burned these religious leaders. They're the very religious ones who are still unbelieving. And they're astonished and outraged that Jesus would claim to be the giver of spiritual life and the ultimate judgment of all men. But he's going to make an even more shocking claim because he rebukes them for their unbelief. He looks at a group of people who think they believe and says, you don't believe. He continued by revealing another truth that's astounding to them, that one day he would raise the dead from their graves. Look at verse 30, right? Notice what he says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Go back to verse 29. And he says, those that come out of the tomb will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All humanity will one day be resurrected. Notice that's the second in verse 29. Those who hear. Jesus describes his power, the authority, his sovereignty. And all humanity will be resurrected. And, 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 and now we don't, and, and we know this, don't we? I don't have to convince you of this. I think every human being knows to some level they're immortal. That there's something beyond death. Now, I know that there are people in the world that claim to be atheists who believe that when you die, that's the end of it. But have you ever noticed that that group doesn't seem to get any bigger? They don't have a great following. Atheism is not growing. It's simply coming up with other ways to explain life. <coughs> and so Jesus shows us the positive and the negative. <coughs> he shows us that judgment is and will come and means everyone are going to stand before Jesus. Folks, I love you, but every one of us will stand before Jesus one day. And God the Father has entrusted the role of judge to Jesus exclusively. And that resurrection will mean eternal life for some and eternal punishment for others. That's how exclusive the gospel is. Which leads me to another very funny thing. Because as I walk around the city of St. John's, I find that almost everybody I talk to believes in heaven. And almost everybody I talk to believes they're going there. I don't know that I've really spoken to anybody that said to me, I believe in heaven and I don't think I'm going. Most people believe in heaven and most people believe they're going there. In fact, what's amazing is most people don't believe in hell 
And if they do, almost no one I talk to believes they're going there. Here's who they think is going to hell. Hitler. He's going to hell. Charles Manson, who just died, is going to hell. Ted Bundy, who murdered over 100 women, for sure, he's going to hell. But look at our passage in verse 25. Jesus says you've got to hear him to live to have eternal life. And if not... Your destiny is sealed and set in verses 29 and 30. That's what Revelation 20, 11 to 15 is all about. And in verse 30, Jesus ends with this most powerful claim. I and the Father are one. And did you ever notice from verses 19 to 30 how Jesus has been speaking in the third person, but now he's speaking in the first person? He goes, I can, I hear, I judge. It's no longer son of God or son of man. It's now I am. Have you ever noticed that? Again, J.C. Ryle sums up this verse. He says, in consequence of the close relationship between me and the Father, he's talking, this is how Jesus is expressing himself. I cannot do anything independently and separately from him. I judge and decide and speak on all points in entire harmony with the Father as though I heard him continually at my side. And so, judging and speaking my judgment on all points is always right. It is right now and will be seen right at the great account of the last day. For in all that I do, I seek not my own will only, but the will of him that sent me, since there is an entire harmony between my will and his. This is the essence of Jesus as God. And so Jesus can judge. And he will judge. And that judgment is right, and it is just, and it is correct. And may I also add, it's loving and holy. Now, I'm looking at your faces, and I can tell that's uncomfortable for us. But see, for the good news to be good, the bad news has to be bad. Or we just have a cheap gospel. But what's more is that we often overlook is that his judgment is in order to glorify God the Father. So understand what this means. If you deny Jesus and you live for yourself, Jesus will glorify God the Father by condemning us because sin cannot be in the presence of God. But if you'll accept Jesus, if you'll confess and repent, Jesus will glorify God by declaring you justified by his blood and now you are sons and daughters of the King. Now you see how the good news is really good when the bad news is really bad. And friends, this is Jesus. And quite frankly, this would have been enough. Jesus could have said, I'm done now. But he doesn't because number two, Jesus is God because of those who witness to it. Because that's now in our next verses, in verses 30 to 32. Notice Jesus, what he says here, notice in verse 30 to 32, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I want you to see how Jesus does this, because now Jesus in his defense is going to call his witnesses. In the court case where you and I are the jury of humanity. But before he even calls his first witness in verses 30 to 32, he explains to us the jury why he won't even call himself to the stand. 
He is. In, in fact, in most jury cases, they'll tell you that's a mistake. That the person who's trying to plead his innocence should take the stand. And Jesus says, no, no, I won't even take the stand in my own defense. I'll let my witnesses tell you. And I love this. He doesn't expect the Jews of his day, and he doesn't expect you and I in 2017 to believe him and trust him and confess to him and repent to him without testimony. So number one, Jesus doesn't witness to himself. Although he could. He could, right? I mean, Jesus could get up and go, I am God. And be done. And he would have been right to do that. Don't think that verse 31 means Jesus can't be trusted or that his testimony is somehow inferior. What this verse does appear to mean is this. If I have no other testimony to bring forward in proof of my Messiahship but my own word, then my testimony would justly be open to suspicion. Jesus is essentially saying, look, while I could simply say I am God, and I would be, I tell you to look around and notice the many witnesses that speak for me. And he starts in verse 33 with John the Baptist. John the Baptist testifies. And I love the way how Jesus describes John. Notice what he says in verse 33. He says in verse 33, You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, verse 35, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I want you to follow along what Jesus is saying here. You remember back in John chapter 1, verse 19, where John becomes that star witness for Jesus Christ, and he says, look, you went to a man, and you went to him, and you asked about me. You went to him. He said, I don't need a man to give me validation, but you know who he is and what he said. And we've already seen that John was not just a light, but he was a light who pointed to the light. I love this in verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Christians don't miss this. The word burning along with shining. You see, John didn't just show people Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. Now, church, this is the joyful legacy of any and every Christian. Please get this this Christmas. To proclaim Jesus, to live for him. In fact, read the history of the church, and that's exactly what you'll discover. Thousands and thousands of testimonies of men and women who were radically transformed for Jesus and gave their lives all to live for him. From John Newton who got converted, a slave trader, and wrote Amazing Grace, to Charles Spurgeon, who got saved at 16, to Jim Elliott, who was a martyr, and later his wife Elizabeth, to Joni Erickson, who's been paralyzed and lived for Christ, and on and on it goes. Parents, parents, do you do yourself and your kids a favor. Buy books this year that tell the stories of those who have lived and died for Jesus. But for goodness sakes, the best Christmas gift is be that in front of your children this Christmas. Don't wow them with the presents. Don't wow them with your words. Wow them with Jesus. Here's one story of millions. Bishop Hugh Latimer. This is how biblical faith took root in England in 2017. It was not when the biblical party seized the government that people opened up their hearts to the gospel. It was when persecuted men and women of God laid down their lives. 
And Bishop Hugh Latimer, when he was tied to the stake and set of flames, and the fact that goes that they used very green wood, and he burned for hours before he died. He looked at his comrade, Nicholas Ridley, and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's what he said as he's burning to death. If we want to serve as mighty witnesses for Christ today, we too must be prepared to die for his gospel. Jim Elliott said this, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life and, I, and may I burn up for you. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. He questioned in his journey, am I ignitable? Can I ask you, church, are you ignitable? He says, God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be aflame. I get accused all the time of being a Bapticostal, and I love the label. Because you know what? I am about this book. I want to be about the Word of God. But for goodness sake, don't you want to see the Holy Spirit of God work in our lives? Don't you want to see revival in St. John's? Don't you want to see churches become filled with souls again? I do. Jesus says to the religious establishment and to the world and to you and I, do you want to see proof that I am God? Look at those who have truly met me and know me. And then in, in verse 36, he next calls his next witness because the works of Jesus testify. And he says, you are amazed by John. Let me tell you, I will do greater works than these. And that's why John chooses these signs that Jesus did because he declares them. Now notice something about these miracles. Jesus says, yes, my miracles are loving and compassionate. When a lame man can walk and the blind can see and the deaf hear and the mute speak, those are wonderful. They're compassionate. They're powerful and almighty and they evoke awe and amazement. But more than anything, these are signs that say, I am God. Look at the verse again. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus reminds you and I, we're not to be enthralled by his miracles, but be enthralled by him, the miracle worker. Are we like the Jewish elders of this day, staring at the results of the power and not at the power itself? That's like when a big muscle car tears down the highway and spins his wheels out and you're busy looking at the skid marks when you're supposed to be looking at the engine, right? Because that's where the power is. And of course, the greatest miracle of all time is when Jesus rises from the dead, listen to me, of his own power. And God calls, Jesus calls God the Father to stand. And that's who's next, because notice in verses 37 and 38, God the Father testifies. Now, when you read those verses in 37 and 38, at first glance, because he says, you have not heard, but my Father testifies of me. Now, when I first read this, I automatically went to Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus is baptized, remember, and the, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and, and God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And remember, later on in Matthew 17, at the transfiguration of Jesus, when Peter, James, and John are there, you hear the voice of God once again. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
Because in those instances, only four men heard him. John the Baptist, Peter and James and John. Now, if you look at the end of verse 37 into verse 38, Jesus pointedly calls this group out because they've got the word of God, but they're not listening or believing or trusting the word of God. You've got Bibles, you're reading them, but you're not hearing them. J.C. Ryle once again says, this verse seems to remind the Jews that with all their pretended reverence for God and affected zeal against blasphemies of him, they were really ignorant of God's mind. Their reverence for him was only a form. Their zeal for him was blind fanaticism. And folks, I love you, but I, is that not most of what's happening in churches in St. John's, Newfoundland? They have a form of godliness and deny its power. They knew no more of his mind than a shape or his voice. They were not acquainted with his word. It did not dwell in their hearts and guide their religion. They proved their own ignorance by not believing whom the Father had sent. Had they really been familiar with the writings of the Old Testament, they would have believed. And so Jesus sums it up in verses 39 and 40. Notice what he says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, church, this has got to stop you and I right here. Are we guilty of owning Bibles, even studying the Bible, and yet not knowing Christ? That word search, the Greek word there means careful and thorough. It's also a forceful word. Jesus is both commanding them to search or see or find him, but also confronting him. He goes, you think you search them, but you don't. The old church father Christostom says, when Christ referred the Jews to the scriptures, he sent them not to merely reading, but to a careful and considerate search. He said, read, not read, but search. You see, they were searching as a means to win God's approval. Literally, they would read the Bible and they thought, well, if I read the Bible, then God's got to approve of me. That's what they were doing. Whereas Jesus says, no, instead of searching to be shown how Jesus had come to give them his life, the Bible itself had become a means to an ends. They read the book, but didn't know the author. They read the book, but they didn't know the author. Their attitude was wrong. Their interests were wrong. Their motives were wrong. And the proof is in what's said in verses 41 to 47. Because finally, Jesus is God because those we glory in tell us to glory in Christ. I love this part. And this is about as snarky and sarcastic as Jesus gets. In verses 41 to 47, he makes his closing arguments. Because notice what he says in verse 41. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. And he goes on from there. He confronts their lust and their longing and their need for affirmation and trying to create a Messiah of their own suit. You, this should remind you, remember at the end of John chapter 2 when John tells us this? Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus makes it clear. 
He demands our worship, but he doesn't need it. And again, this is the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. You see, he is worthy as the son of God, but we shouldn't fool ourselves. Jesus is not some power-hungry crybaby who needs affirmation and will get mad if he doesn't get it. That's what these guys were. They didn't like Jesus because he didn't come and say, great job, guys. I left Israel in good hands. You see, they would not accept Jesus because Jesus dared not to accept them as they were. And even worse, he dared to accept sinners. And that's what ticked them off. In the last blow in verses 45 to 47, as Jesus gives his closing arguments, he says, look, you all give glory and pat yourselves on the back because Moses is your guy. I'm going to tell you, in the final day, Moses will stand up and condemn you. They made a... Do you realize in a Jewish Passover to this day, when they observe the Passover Seder, there's an empty seat at the table and that's the seat reserved for Moses because Moses is going to come back. This is the whole idea of it, all right? And they adored, the one they adored and they admired, the one they all wanted to be. If you ask any Jew to this day, who is the most famous Jew? They'll say Moses, to this day. And Jesus says that the one you admire the most will be the one who testifies against you. You're all upset because I won't pat you on the back. Well, the very guy you're patting on the back, he'll condemn you. Remember when the rich man and, and Lazarus, remember when the rich man dies and he goes to hell? And he says, oh, send Lazarus back. Send Lazarus back to tell my family. What does Jesus say? If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, how will they believe him when that comes back from the dead? Remember when Jesus says on the road to Emmaus and they, he says, and he's talking to them and they're all depressed because Jesus has died. And it says he broke bread with them. And he says, and he began to open the scriptures and to expound it to them. And what does it say? And he began with Moses and he worked his way up through the prophets. You see, this is Jesus over and over again. He, he says, look, this Moses. And at last, Jesus says, the defense rests. And it was here, after this, they wanted him dead. Because by the time you get to John 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, they go from wanting him dead to planning his death. And by the time you get to John 19, they kill him. That's what happens. D.A. Carson sums up this passage. He says, the opposition against Jesus is rising and will culminate in his crucifixion. An execution publicly justified, ironically, by an appeal to the law itself. But for the reader, you and I, there is an implicit invitation to understand and believe in Jesus and the law of Moses in a way that many Jews of Jesus' day did not. And so I said I wanted to tee this up, right? Jesus was born to die. That was the plan. But I started with a question and that question remains. And so I ask you and I ask me and I ask us with Christmas approaching, with the world in chaos, with your own life and eternal destiny on the line. I ask again, who is Jesus? And if you say, God, then what does that mean for you? Brendan Manning wrote that book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and he says, Jesus is not a hobby or a part-time project or a good theme from a book or a last resort when all human effort fails. He's our life. If you say, who is Jesus? Well, he's not God. Then I would say, live as best you can, for this life is as good as it gets. 
And while you might say, well, Pastor Steve, goodness, that's harsh. It's the most loving thing I can tell you. Because denying or rejecting Jesus means this. A couple of chapters later in John, Jesus would look in the faces of these same people and say, in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Tim Keller said, in the Bible, foolishness means a destructive self-centeredness. Fools cannot bear to have anyone over them. And so they ignore God or deny he exists. Some of this rebellion exists in every heart. Every kind, every sin is a kind of practical atheism. It is acting as if God were not there. And so I want you to hear the call of Jesus today and accept him and confess him and trust in him and believe in him and see how he will change you and transform you and never leave you. Don't leave here today if you don't know Jesus. Please, I beg of you, come talk to me so I can introduce you to Jesus, God in the flesh. And Christians, two things. Because if you are here today and say, I believe, then this passage yells out to us today, we must share him with others. This Christmas, share him. It's funny because John Calvin and all of the stuff I hear about Calvinism and all of these things, and I believe that poor old John Calvin is often misquoted and misunderstood because listen to one of the things he said. No man is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set open unto all men. Neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in, save only our unbelief. So we've got to share him. Friends, Calvary Baptist Church, if Jesus is God, if we believe it and we trust in it, then share him. Share him. Michelle's not here, but Julie, make sure you tell her. Because one thing that Jill, uh, Michelle came to me and said she wanted me to do at the Christmas banquet is we've got to sing, go tell it on the mountain. Well, friends, go tell it on the rock. Go tell it on the rock. Go tell people. Share Jesus with your kids and your spouse and your family. Share Jesus with your coworkers. Offer to pray for them and pray with them. Tell them how Jesus is working in your life. Unless... Is Jesus working in your life? Is Jesus God to you in more than just mental ascent? For all of you young people that are here that have been blessed to be born into Christian families, who is Jesus to you? The religion of your parents or your Savior and Lord? Let me just say again, God has no grandkids. God has no grandkids. Everyone has to accept him. Will you be like John the Baptist? Remember I said this, will you be like Hugh Latimer? Are you and I ignitable for Jesus? This kid's song, Jesus bids us shine with a clear, pure light. Like a little candle burning in the night, in this world of darkness we must shine, you in your small corner and I in mine. And finally, we can trust him with our lives. You must proclaim him, but we can trust him with our lives. Often the misunderstood John Newton. I laugh at Hollywood. Let me set this up. John Newton puts it so simply. Looking unto Jesus, the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Looking unto Jesus. But listen. For those who live outside the faith have very little to help them navigate the challenges of a falling world. Have you not seen that in our world today? 
Every time my Twitter explodes, there's a new sexual scandal. Countless men who have abused women. Have you also noticed this? How many women, at least in the United States, are high school teachers sleeping with young teenage boys? Every day I turn on my computer, there's another teacher been arrested. But what's hit me is the shock that men are sinful and harmful, that women are being hurt and taken advantage of, or, nor the countless acts of female teachers looking for love and significance in the meetings in the arms of teenage boys. It's the fact that no matter what the response of the accused, there is no option to even find or offer forgiveness, redemption, or transformation. Some of these men, when they've been caught, have issued incredible apologies. And everybody says, nope, don't accept off with his head because that's the world's only remedy without a gospel all you have is penalty but Jesus has come to seek and to save them which are lost and he offers rest to the weary and forgiveness to the sinner and hope to the hurting and peace to the anxious and pardon to the guilty and life to the dead Jesus came to take our place to deal with our sin to give us himself and his promise and he'll never leave us so trust him and will this Christmas be a very different Christmas for him do you know him and are you living for him thus ends the lesson let's close in prayer father god thank you for this day and now may we praise you in the fact that you are indeed our messiah and our lord and may anyone here who is not knowing you have the courage to come and ask about knowing you and may christians like me not pretend or be religious but may we share you and trust in you that Jesus is God. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen.